everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. The new year already appears to be moving by at a breakneck speed, which means that, heck, we're almost into February. So I suppose it's only natural that my thoughts start turning to that mid-February holiday that purports to be about love, but just seems to get more and more commercial every year. I'm talking, of course, about the NBA Slam Dunk Contest. Seems like every year a new gimmick is rolled out. A couple of years ago, a guy painted a picture of himself and then jumped over the easel and then unveiled the picture. You have a guy blowing out the candle on a cupcake as part of his dunk. Where will it end? To win this year's contest, will Zach Levine have to eat an entire unicycle while dressed as an ambassador attending the court of King Louis XVI? And also incidentally dunking a basketball? Probably. What happened to you, Slam Dunk Contest? You used to be about the love of the dunks. The dunks! And also pumping up your Reeboks. But I'm not here to just play Andy Rooney and point out the flaws in society like the cantankerous old man I am. No, I'm here to play Listerine and offer helpful solutions to a problem that I myself just invented. And that solution is this. Defense. I want to see some defense in these slam dunk contests. If you allow the other competitors in the slam dunk contest to defend against the dunk, I bet you're going to see a lot less prop comedy coming out of these contestants. Now, I mean, if you want to try to eat a clown hat Sunday while you dunk over Donovan Mitchell, then more power to you. But my guess is you're going to see a return to the fundamentals. And isn't that what a slam dunk contest is supposed to be about? Fundamentals? I like to think so. Anyway, before we get too far into it, I got a brief note about this upcoming episode. The issue we're covering deals with Valkyrie's return to Asgard, and as such, there's a lot of talk about Norse mythology, specifically the Marvel Universe version of Norse mythology, which is a topic I don't know a ton about. Now, don't worry, that doesn't stop me from talking out of my ass about it at length, but if you want a better informed examination of Marvel's version of Asgard, then I would heartily recommend that you check out a podcast that Miles Stokes and Elizabeth Alley put out a couple of years ago called Thor, The Lightning and the Storm. It's really good. It takes a look at Walt Simonson's run on the Thor series, and it's a lot of fun, and you should listen to it. Also, feel free to just yell at your phone or whatever listening device you're using, or yell at me over the internet about all the shit that I get wrong. Don't worry about me. I'm not in danger of running out of unearned confidence anytime soon. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Lisa. Lisa's afraid of moths, especially Dicomeris thanatopsis. This rhyme is what you get when she writes a synopsis. Synopsis! Thanks, Lisa. Also, thanks for marrying me. That was nice of you. Defenders, number 66. December, 1978. War of the Dead. Written by David Anthony Kraft. 
drawn by Ed Hannigan, inked by Bruce D. Patterson, lettered by Elaine Heinel and Gaspar Saladino, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Bob Hall and Mary Jo Duffy. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Hellcat a little bit. That's it. Previously in the Defenders. For the last few issues, Valkyrie has been suffering from bouts of berserker rage, accompanied by hallucinations of her previous life in Asgard. While she was recovering from a recent such episode, a mysterious figure from Valkyrie's past appeared to her in a vision and summoned her away. The sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger scribbled a hasty note to her fellow defenders, informing them only that she was leaving and would not return. Then she and her flying horse Aragorn disappeared in a puff of smoke. Gadzooks! Who provoked our harried heroine's hasty departure? To where did Valkyrie and her airborne equine ally emigrate? And after the last storyline saw a titular non-team's rank swell to as many as 39 members, how many defenders will grace the pages of this issue? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so Asgard, sort of. Hela, the Norse goddess of death. And let me get out my abacus. Carry the four. Two. Two defenders. Ah, ah, ah. Valkyrie rides Aragorn into Asgard and is greeted by Heimdall, the guardian of the Rainbow Bridge. He and Val exchange pleasantries before she rides into downtown Asgard. The citizens are a little bit wary of her on account of Valkyries are the ones who pick which warriors who died in battle get escorted to Valhalla, so I guess they're associated with death. But Val has a lot of shit on her mind and she doesn't really notice. Val thinks to herself that she wishes Odin was her boss, cause he's a pretty cool guy. But her boss is Hela, the goddess of death and elaborate hats, so she rides by Odin without popping in to say hello. Because she's been having weird visions of her past, she decides to visit the Norns, the three fates of ancient Norse mythology, and see if they have any idea what's been going on with her lately. She swings by the base of Yggdrasil, the Tree of Life, which is where the Norns hang out. Apparently Yggdrasil is in a park in the middle of Asgard, which is weird because Asgard is in the upper branches of Yggdrasil, but whatever. The logic of mythological Norse geography is a sometimes thing, and... This issue is not one of those times. More on that later. The Norns are like, Hey Val, your past and present are all fucked up, but if you want to see something really screwy, take a peek in the spring of Mimir and see what the future has in store for you. It's going to blow your mind. Now, you might be asking yourself, Self, isn't the water from the spring of Mimir prized throughout the Nine Realms for its ability to imbue great wisdom? Isn't Mimir, the wisest god in all of the Norse pantheon, going to be annoyed that everyone's bogarting his spring? Yeah, well, I wouldn't worry about him. He's now a severed head that Odin carries around in a bag and asks questions to. So, a couple of things about that. One, if a guy ends up as a head who lives in a bag, you gotta question how wise he actually is. And B, if Valkyrie's dream boss is a guy who takes advice from a head that he carries around in a bag, it kind of starts to make sense that she tolerated Kyle's leadership for as long as she did. Anyway, Valkyrie gazes into the waters of the Spring of Mimir and sees a vision of her future. It's not great. She's going to be in a big giant battle. She's going to be struck down by an unseen assailant. Her shitty boss Hela is going to fight a guy in a shark suit. 
whole lot of people are going to die, including the Defenders, and she's going to be banished to Niflheim and burn in flames. Which is weird, because Niflheim isn't usually an on-fire sort of place, but that's visions of the future for you. Val is like, shitty, can I do anything to prevent this? Skuld, who is like the Norn version of the Ghost of Christmas future, is like, Because, like the Ghost of Christmas Future, Skull doesn't talk. But Verandi, the Norn of Christmas Present, translates for her, and the answer is, nope. Bummer. Val's like, okay, well, guess I better go check in with Hela so that she can kill the world and my friends and burn me to death. Bye, guys. Thanks for all your help. The talking norms reply, bye, Val. Have fun. Also, remember that the sorcerously insane personality of Barbara Norris is locked within your psyche. As Val flies off, she thinks to herself, That's right. The sorcerously insane personality of the mortal Barbara Norris is locked inside my psyche. Sucks to be her. Wonder if that information will be relevant soon. Hmm. Meanwhile, back in New York, Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, wakes up from a bad dream. She's been having some vague, psychic-adjacent premonitions that Valkyrie is in trouble. She sits on her sofa and hopes that her buddy is okay. Across town at the Justice Department, two government workers named Hal and Ron discuss an upcoming case. Ron is convinced that Kyle Richmond is a crook who is guilty of fraud, tax evasion, and stock manipulation. Hal is initially unconvinced, but Ron shows him a stack of evidence that includes a Daily Bugle article about the time Kyle donated a bad statue of Spider-Man to a university, and now Hal isn't sure what to think. The article's alliterative headline reads, Millionaire is mum in Spider-Man statue snafu, which totally supports my theory that the Daily Bugle is the New York Post of the Marvel Universe. Man, if Ron's pissed about a questionable statue donation... Imagine if he knew about the time Kyle helped build a giant laser to flood the planet so his evil buddies could sell it to a race of swimming aliens. Wonder how the Bugle would cover that story. Billionaire Bozo bungles extinction event planned by planet-peddling pals. Is Spider-Man to blame? I'm kind of between jobs right now, so uh, J. Jonah Jameson, if you're looking for reporters, hit me up. Back in Asgard, Valkyrie arrives at Valhalla which is usually a giant mead hall where warriors who died in battle get to go, but in this comic it's like a whole country or something filled with warriors who died in battle. Val is greeted by a dude named Harokin, who seems nice. He's the leader of an army of dead warriors. Also, his name sounds like the noise Ryu makes when he throws a fireball, which is fun. Anyway, Street Fighter sound effect asks Valkyrie why she looks so grumpy. She answers, Oh, I'm just a little bummed because I found out Hela's gonna banish me and set me on fire. I'll get over it. Just then Hela shows up and tells everyone to huddle up and take a knee. Val's like, go ahead and double kill me and set me on fire. Harokin is like, Hela, don't double kill Val and set her on fire. Hela's like, shut up you guys. The Norns may be all-knowing and infallible in their predictions, but they don't know what they're talking about. I didn't call Val back here to punish her. I want her to lead my armies against this asshole god named Olorus, who's angling for my job as the god of death. Also, as we all know, Valkyrie's name is Brunhilda, so I'm gonna call her that. Huh. Good to know. Kinda odd that Val's been introducing herself by her job title for the last 62 issues, then. 
Somebody needs to find a healthier work-life balance. Anyway, Valkyrie, which is to say Brunhilde, I guess, leads Hela's army of dead guys and a host of other Valkyries into the desolate mountain ranges of Valhalla, which, again, is usually a giant meat hall. One of the mountains is shaped like a shark's fin, and while that's not a particularly uncommon mountain shape, this particular mountain does have some distinctly unique features. Namely, it is hollowed out and is the secret base for Olerus and his minions. We meet a couple of those minions. Popo the Cunning is a squirrely little dipshit with a pointy hat who is big on schemes. Cassiolina is a brooding evil sorceress. We've seen her before, but it's been a while. In fact, it was her rivalry with the Enchantress that led to the Defender's first encounter with Valkyrie way back in Defender's number 4. Seems like Cassiolina still isn't much of a team player, and her and Popo seem to be competing for their boss Olerus's attention. Speaking of Olerus, let's just say that the dude has a unique look. He's wearing a blue and purple suit of high-tech armor that has a giant mechanical shark head for a helmet. It manages to be imposing, a little scary, and goofy as hell all at the same time. Impressive. Olerus and Popo discuss a trap that they are planning to spring on Hela's forces at a nearby mountain pass. Unaware of Olerus and Popo's machinations, Valkyrie leads her army towards the mountains. Another Valkyrie named Svava approaches Brunhilde Val and is like, Man, Hela is such a jerk. I hate working for her. Don't you wish we had a cool boss like Odin? I hear he carries a severed head around in a bag and talks to it. So cool. Val's like, Yes, but also, shut up and do your job. Then she flies off to scout ahead. Val feels bad about snapping at her buddy, but has little time for self-reproach, because she soon spots Olerus's army. She reports back to Harulkin and Svava, and minutes later, a deific Donnybrook of the dead erupts. The forces in the pitched battle seem more or less evenly matched, but then Olerus triggers an earthquake which buries both armies under an avalanche of stones. Shitty. Thanks to her flying horse, Val manages to escape the falling rocks and seek safety atop a nearby mountain. A mountain that is shaped like the hat LL Cool J describes at the end of Deep Blue Sea, which is to say, like a shark's fin. Uh-oh. Sure enough, as Val approaches the peculiar peak, a door opens in the side of it. The Azir Amazon thinks to herself, This seems like it's probably a trap. Years of superheroing have taught me how to deal with those. I'll walk right into it. Val follows the perhaps too conveniently placed tunnel to a large antechamber, where she is surprised to encounter... herself. Lying inert on the stone floor, Valkyrie recognizes her old immortal body from which the Enchantress drew her personality and shoved it into the mortal body of the sorcerously insane Barbara Norris. Tentatively, she reaches out to boop herself on the forehead. As soon as new Val touches old Val, there is a flash of light and a loud crack sound effect. Oh shit, is this a time cop thing where by touching her past self, she created a tear in the space-time continuum and now Ron Silver's going to explode? No, but nearly as bad. When the air clears, we see that now Val is lying on the ground while her old body stands above her and declares that Valkyrie has been defeated and now Barbara Norris is running the show. Olerus, Papo, and Cassiolina smirk nearby. You know, given that the last two guys she dated were a three-headed demon and Jack Norris, 
I could totally see Barbara falling for either Olorus or Popo. Frankly, either one would be a step up from Jack. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. So, you just got back from visiting your partner's family in Florida? I did. How was that? It was fine. Mostly sunny. That's nice. Her nieces are smart and adorable. Very good. Mm -hmm. What'd you think of this comic book? Oh, man. You know how... I'm trying to think of an example. Like, maybe any one of the Batman movies that's like one of the longer ones have these lots of action Mm -hmm. to the point that you kind of space out because so much stuff is blowing up for so long. Yeah. I had a little bit of that. For me, it was more maybe analogous to like the Transformers movies. Oh, that's a better example. A Michael Michael Bay type. Where it's like a close-up of a ton of complicated things happening, and then you pull back and something different is happening and you, you can't really figure it out. Yeah, I had a similar reaction, both with the art and with the storytelling in it. I had to spend a lot of time with this comic book. I ended up coming away kind of appreciating it, but yeah, both the artwork and the story, it was just kind of overwhelming. It reminded me of like when you're reading a textbook, and especially for me, a math textbook, and you get to the end of a page and you realize that you sounded out all of the words in your head, but you don't know anything that was just said. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, in my case, how much of it was there were things that bothered me because I got tripped up on some of the details of Norse mythology. And because it didn't jibe with what I know of Norse mythology, I kind of couldn't reconcile certain aspects of what was happening in the story. I was actually a little worried for you when I was (laughs) reading that, because I was like, oh man, Hub knows all this stuff, and... It sounds a little funny to me, but whatever. I'll just keep going. Yeah, I think you might have enjoyed the comic book more than me at first blush because I did get the feeling that it was like, if I could just let this stuff go and like look at it like a Game of Thrones type thing where it's just like, oh man, there's a lot of names that I've never heard before and a lot of place names that I haven't heard before and it's a little overwhelming, but I'm going to trust the storytelling and that I'll figure it out all eventually. Mm -hmm. then I think I might have dug it a little bit more. But I had trouble doing that, and part of that was the writing, but also part of it was the artwork. There is a lot of detail going on in a lot of the panels in this. Not all of them, but it comes across really busy, and I was trying to figure out what makes the difference, because with George Perez, there's also a ton of detail, but you don't get overwhelmed by it. And like with a lot of Jack Kirby stuff, and this is definitely going for a Kirby motif. Mm -hmm. It's his version of Asgard that the story takes place in. And he will often have panels that have a ton of technology and like stuff going on in the background, but you don't get overwhelmed by the panel. It's just like, oh, here's what's happening in this panel. And if I spend more time in it, I can see this stuff happening in the background. With this, I feel like there just wasn't a place to focus your eye. Like, there wasn't anything in some of the panels that would, like, draw your attention to the important part of the action. So it was just, like, a ton of panels that were, like, Hieronymus Bosch paintings almost, where it's just like, there's a lot happening here. And that can be cool, but it kind of didn't work for me. And I think it speaks to kind of almost poor shot composition, Mm. like, to put it in a more cinematic tone. And just maybe inexperienced storytelling. Because you did also in this see a couple of pages where there were panels where 
arrows would be put on, I think, afterwards to indicate the order that you had to read things in. And that's an issue I've had with Hannigan before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the arrow thing seemed a little clunky, for sure. On the other hand, I really appreciated some of the panels that had the extreme amount of detail and busyness in them, because for me, especially those opening panels, I think it's page two and three, Mm -hmm. where you just feel like it's just dropping you into the middle of all of this excitement and difference which i think can can work uh in a asgard specifically story and i think that can be like useful to just be like oh my gosh this is all overwhelming but i think i maybe just got bogged down with being overwhelmed in it more than i wish i had i think also for me what i enjoyed and we'll talk about this in the panels section but that they that Hannigan and Patterson put their names on the column that's kind of holding up the structure in the middle of that giant spread with all the stuff going on. I liked that too. I thought that was a nice touch. And that it happened separate and after the credits, uh, not as a substitute for the credits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were times when some of the detail would work in an almost Where's Waldo way that was kind of <laughs> interesting to me because I did find a few details like that that I found to be a lot of fun. And like I said, once I spent some time deconstructing what was happening and figuring out what they meant when they said certain things, some of the big ones being Niflheim and Valhalla, and those things kind of didn't jibe with what I understood those concepts to be. Mm -hmm. Once I deconstructed it and spent more time with it, I ended up liking the story and where it's going. And I feel like it is maybe setting up to resolve some long dangling plot lines regarding things about Valkyrie's origin that don't make a ton of sense. Man, I sure hope so, because when I got to the end of this, I was like, oh no, this has all been a horribly elaborate plot to just give Val back her old costume. (laughs) I think that might be an aspect of it. But, I mean, independent of her old costume, there are a lot of things about Valkyrie that get brought up in this. And some of them have been things that since her inception as a character haven't made a ton of sense. Like the fact that she beforehand, I think, was just a magical personality that was summoned whole cloth by the Enchantress. And in this we learn that no, she took an existing personality and just put that in Barbara Norris's body. And that's where the Valkyrie character comes from. We also find out that she's not just a Valkyrie, She is a specific Valkyrie, Brunhilde, which brings on a ton of backstory itself. Brunhilde is maybe the most famous Valkyrie uh, celebrated in the ring cycle and and all of that, which means that, like, she's got a ton of shit going on with Fafnir and Sigurd and all kinds of shit going on. Um, Fafnir, that was a dragon, right? Yeah, it was. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. So I wonder to what extent it will explore that, but it was kind of a thing that did need addressing. It kind of in certain ways reminds me of the Wonder Girl origin story, where it was kind of introduced as a one-off and then the character stuck around for so long that it started to be an issue that there was this confusion in her original backstory. So hopefully some of that stuff will get addressed. The Brunhilde thing, to me, makes way more sense than random Valkyrie gets put in Barbara Norris's body. I maybe would have preferred it if it was a less famous Valkyrie, maybe one that didn't have such a specific and long and tangled backstory. Again, uh, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> well, let's 
get into some of the things that bothered me about the depiction of Norse mythology, because I'm not going to be able to let it go until we do. Okay, okay. So, here are the main ones. The concept of Valhalla, and the concept of Niflheim and the Nine Realms. Do you know what the Nine Realms are? Uh, no. Okay, so quick rundown. All of the universe is represented by Yggdrasil, the Tree of Life. Got it. Giant tree. It's a asshole squirrel that runs up and down it and spreads rumors and is a total dickhole. That guy's name is Ratatosk, and he just likes to cause trouble because he's a fucking squirrel. Of course. On the tree, there are the nine different realms of existence. The main one that comes up the most is Midgard. That's which Earth. is Earth. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And to a ridiculous extent within Thor comic books, anytime Midgard gets mentioned, and it's often several times per issue, there'll be a little asterisk that'll say Earth. Hmm. Asgard hmm. is the realm of the gods, or some of the gods. There's also Vanheim, which is the realm of kind of the chiller gods. If you're a god of, say, wisdom or poetry, or for fertility, or beauty. Like, basically, if you're, like, a pretty god, you're probably from Vanheim. Hmm. Then you got Jotunheim, which is the realm of the giants, the ice giants generally, but giants in general. You get Niflheim, which gets referenced here, which is a cold and dark mist world. It's mysterious and spooky and cold and dark and shrouded in mist. That is not the Niflheim that is depicted here. Niflheim that is depicted here is a flaming realm where Val is tortured by fire. Very much like a Christian hell. Yeah. And that would correlate more to Muspelheim, which is the realm of fire and fire demons and shit. And then you have... Oh, Patterson. <laughs> well, you can't put that on Patterson. Oh, Hannigan. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a team effort. I don't think the Inker added the flames in post. And also Kraft, because he's the one who wrote that she was burning in there. You know what this needs? <laughs> Some flames. Yeah, but I mean, there's a whole realm that could just be the flame things. And that's where flame demons are from. And like, I think Surtur's from there and shit. And then you have Alfheim. Guess who's from Alfheim? Uh, Alf? <laughs> no, close. Elfs. Oh, L with the E. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe Gordon Shumway's from there, too. Wait, is Gordon Shumway the one that's Sting or Alf? What? I always mix up which Gordon is... Gordon Shumway is Alf's name. Okay, Sting is Gordon Sumner. Yeah. Okay, I mix them up all the time. That's because they both think cats are delicious. And they both fuck for nine hours. <laughs> but only one of them was in the delightful Dune movie. Yes. Okay, so we got that sorted out. So in addition to Alfheim, and these are like elves, like more Lord of the Rings elves, not Keebler elves. Oh, that's good. Then you get Svartalfheim, which sounds like it should be where smart elves are from, mm. but that's where dwarves are from. Oh. And is that all of them? Oh, shit. I wasn't counting. Uh, oh, no, because there's also Helheim. Which is the land of the dead that's ruled by hell. Oh, okay. Who we see is that the fiery one? No, it's just everybody who dies goes there. Except... What about the people in Valhalla? Well, that's the thing. Valhalla isn't a realm. And that's the thing that totally threw me about this book. One of the things, besides the whole Niflheim. And when I say Niflheim, might as well be saying Nippleheim. Because it's... it's cold there. And also because <laughs> when you look at the Valkyries, like... 
They're wearing their, like, short shorts armor that have, like, weird nipple guards on their boob plate Mm -hmm. armor. Very, very revealing. No, Valhalla is where if you die valiantly in battle, then the Valkyrie come down and they will take you up. And Valhalla is in Asgard, but it's just a big mead hall. But you can never leave? No. Until Ragnarok. That's where you train for Ragnarok. It's like a giant VA hall for dead people Mm. uh, where you drink mead and you feast and you just fight each other and have fun fighting each other forever until it's time for Ragnarok and you fight on the side of the gods against Loki and the ice giants and all the other shits like Fenris the wolf and stuff. (sighs) Fenris. Such a jerk. But I mean, in his defense, I'm sure it must be tough growing up having successful siblings like, uh, you know, the Serpent of Midgard and an eight-legged horse and Hela. They're all Loki's children. I'm stuck on the eight-legged horse thing, man. I feel like dogs and horses, other quadrupeds, like if they stop and think about what they're doing, they would just fall down all the time. Mm -hmm. But eight? Yeah, well, Sleepnir is a smart guy. His, His dad's Loki. Or actually, I think his mom is Loki. Man, Loki has, like, a lot of kids that are very disparate and not a particularly hands-on guy. Like, in Norse mythology, he's kind of the equivalent of, like, Zeus or, uh... Screaming Jay Hawkins. <laughs> or Screaming Jay Hawkins, or I was going to say Sean Kemp, okay. but, yeah. <laughs> Just a lot of kids from a lot of people didn't really stick around to do a ton of hands-on parenting. Hmm. But, yeah, so that's just kind of an overview. But Valhalla here... I feel like is, I kept getting tripped up because I think they are referring to all of hell as being Valhalla at certain times. And it makes sense that Hela would rule over Valhalla, but not Asgard. If like Valhalla is like an embassy of hell that's in Asgard, kind of, where technically it's part of Helheim, Mm -hmm. but... It's like the Vatican. Like it's its own sovereign kind of... Right, except for that it's ruled over by the ruler of Helheim in this case. So it would be more like an embassy. Yeah, yeah, technically this is U.S. soil, even though it's the embassy in Australia or whatever. Got it, okay. But here, Valhalla is depicted as a vast realm where there's a whole war going on. And it's supposed to just be a mead hall. So it's like the far reaches of Valhalla should just be like... I mean, it's a big mead hall. Like, magically big. Mm -hmm. But still, that should just be like, the far reaches of Valhalla should be like, you know, over by the pool tables. Yeah, and so in this story, Valkyrie's bummed out because it was once verdant and nice. Mm -hmm. And now it's all rocky and sad. I think... That's that's Valhalla also? I think the concept of Valhalla in this book is being conflated with like the Greek version of like the Elysian fields or something like that, Mm -hmm. where it's like a vast swath of hell, but the part that's set aside for nice people. There's also something about like the way that she's treated when she first gets to Asgard. She doesn't even notice that everybody's running away from her because they view her as an avatar of death because the role of the Valkyrie is to handpick which warriors who have fallen in battle get to go to Valhalla. The weird thing about that is, I mean, she's in Asgard. She's not on Midgard. So the people that are there are either gods or they're already dead people from Midgard who have already been chosen to live there. 
Like, they shouldn't view her with fear. They should view her as, like, a college recruiter, kind of, who is, like, <laughs> coming back to the campus where she helped sign these people up for the team. So those those were some of the things that kind of threw me off about this. And I don't, I certainly don't have, like, an encyclopedic knowledge of Norse mythology. I've cobbled together what I know from a combination of, like, comic books and Edith Hamilton and Dolaire and some young adult fiction. Mm-hmm. But... I couldn't really make this story jibe with any of it, and that would have been fine if I had been able to stop trying. Yeah, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. It really is. One of the other weird things about it is that in Marvel Comics, the character Hell is called Hela. Mm -hmm. And in Norse mythology, she's usually just referred to as Hell, but I think they wanted to differentiate her from the mild curse word hell Mm. and also feminize her name a little bit but it always gives me the impression that maybe she just spent too much time in northern california (laughs) she'll be hella dead Uh Mm uh-huh what did you think about the potential subplot being introduced that i think it's a saura who's one of the other valkyries says to val like hey um on the down low hella is totally not from here and is not cool I think that's just some standard talking shit about your boss. Yeah, okay. One of the other kind of funny things to me is Hela's rival for being the god of death, which is, I guess, what this whole war is about. And it's made clear that this war isn't Ragnarok, but it is going to result in maybe everybody on Earth dying, including the Defenders. And no, this isn't an imaginary thing. This is going to happen. So we'll, we'll see how that gets resolved. But Hela's rival who describes himself as the future god of death, is a guy named Olorus. And that means smelly? That's odorous. Oh, that's Spanish. It has a olor spell. I believe he is supposed to represent Ulur, but it's a Latinization of his name, which a few different mythologies end up getting conflated in this, which you see there's at one point they look at a map that is a super shitty map, but there is a reference to the mountains of the Minotaur. And I'm like, well, that's not Norse at all. That's straight up Greek shit. Yeah, even I would know that had I paid attention to the map. (laughs) Well, you're better off not paying attention to that map. As I said, it's a shitty map. Mm. But Olorus is what was used as the Latinization of this god's name. Do you want to guess what he is the god of? Fish heads or sharks? No. Um, serpents? Not even close. Wait, he's got a giant serpent tail and a giant shark mask on over his head? Yeah, and as near as I can tell, that relates to nothing about him. He was the god of skiing. What? And bows and arrows. So basically, he's he's the god of biathlons. Oh, wow. Uh, Which, it's very funny to me that he's the guy who's like, well, I'm really good at biathlon, so uh, I think I can do this, handle this death gig. That doesn't sound evil. Well, I mean, death isn't necessarily evil. I mean, this guy does this seem guy pretty is sure. Evil. Yeah, and he has uh, recruited a familiar face, Popo. Cassiolina. Oh, we have not seen Popo before. Oh, you thought he was pronounced Popo? No, I was pretty sure it was Popo, but I like calling him Popo. That's fair. Yeah, but we've seen Cassiolina before. She was the main foil for the Enchantress when Valkyrie first showed up, way back like sixty-two issues ago. In Defenders number four. 
Man, I kind of wish we had the uh, president of the drama club category for this one because she is acting so dramatic. Yeah, I couldn't even describe why it cracks me up so much, but when she is like gazing thoughtfully, mournfully, posing dramatically, holding the skull in her hand, and it's upside down. I know, I was like, turn that shit around. You doofus, you know which way skulls go. Even if you're like using it as a bowl, don't you want to use like the brain pan? What's wrong with that lady? (sighs) Haven't you ever seen a shitty fantasy movie from the 80s where people drink out of skulls? Mm. Always drink out of the top. Yeah, or like a Yorick situation. If you're trying to drink out of the jaw, you're going to fucking spill meat all over your shirt there's not like a good mouth hole there despite the fact they were drinking out of the mouth hole (laughs) counterintuitive i know but no i like i said i I couldn't even really describe why i thought it was funny but when i saw that panel i was like you dummy i actually went ha just because it looks so silly speaking of silly popo the cunning yeah so i read that i did a little research that he initially reported to her but it seems in this book like they are at least peers. I think rivals for uh, yeah, for the god of skis. That doesn't make any damn sense. <laughs> I like his battle armor, though. That shit is over the top. It looks so impractical. Are you familiar with street sharks? No. I'm going to show you a picture. They were a late-era Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ripoff from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon era. Oh, yeah. He looks kind of street sharky. Yeah, he looks, he's totally a street shark. Just kind of, kind of like the snake man from that movie Dreamscape. Yeah, but he didn't have the giant head armor that goes over his head, did he? The snake man? Yeah. No, his head was just a giant, like, cobra head. Yeah. But he had a big tail. Yeah, I guess. I think he looks more like a street shark. Street shark from the shoulders up. <laughs> snake man from the neck down. Yeah, uh, street shark in the streets. <laughs> And a sheet shark in the sheets. Oh. I am sure there is some kind of slash fiction called sheet sharks that is uh, just porn about the street sharks. If not, why don't you guys write some? Don't send it to me, but I think you might have fun. There's an audience out there somewhere. I'm sure there is. What did you think of the cover of this issue? Pretty good. I like the Kirby crackly stuff in the sky. I don't recall ever seeing Aragorn being decked out with pink riding gear no but i think it looks good on him i think it's an okay look i like the cover a lot it's by uh john buscema who i am a fan of his work he's sal buscema's older brother oh wow he did a lot of work for the avengers and a ton of different titles uh conan the barbarian uh he was one of the regular and i think maybe the first artist on that but i like the way he draws asgard What threw me about the cover is there's a little box at the bottom that says, And if Valkyrie is here, can the Hulk be far behind? Yes. Yes, he definitely can be. I saw that and I was like, oh good, he's finally back. I won't have to make up another Hulk's rules based on, oh, I don't know, nothing. Yeah, no, he shows up in one panel in which uh, Valkyrie has a vision of him dying. His floating head appears in that panel. But I think this is a sign that this came out at or near the height of the Hulk's popularity. I think that the Hulk TV show was airing at this point. And so you really want to maximize any Hulk appearance that you can get. And they're kind of like poochieifying him here, where if the Hulk's not around, all the other characters should be standing around saying, where's the Hulk? Mm. 
So I think that's what was going on with that, but it, it was just definitely a, hey. Little bait and switch. Yeah, I mean, they technically didn't say he was going to be here. This was a question, so I guess it's on me that I thought the answer would be, no, he can't be far behind. Bet a lot of people wanted their 35 cents back having that question go unanswered. I would imagine so. We also see that when Valkyrie first shows up in Asgard, she says something along the lines of, if Odin was in charge of Valhalla the way he should be, then I would petition directly to him to find out why I was summoned. But I can't. And we see as she says that, she is riding Aragorn right by Odin, who I guess is in some kind of an outdoor cafe? I kind of got the impression that he was just, like, sitting in, like, a cafe reading his email or something. He's looking at this scroll, and he's got, like, a lamp-type thing next to him that I think is maybe supposed to be, like, a mead horn or something. But the captioning tells us, but Odin knows just what's going on with this shit. So I'm curious as to how that's going to play out. Yeah, it was it was puzzling. I mean, she made an assumption that he was nowhere around and was not in charge. Well... Is that, I is that the case? I think that she was referring to some kind of like Asgardian politics thing where he's not in charge of Valhalla. He's still in charge of Asgard. But Valhalla is, I guess, in this under the rule of hell. Mm. So I think that's what she was saying, but it was a little bit obtuse. I had to puzzle that through and figure out once again what they meant by Valhalla in this context. I really liked that panel where the Allfather is sitting there, yeah, reading his scroll email and chilling out. I also wasn't sure what that little thingy next to him was, but it reminded me of your old apartment where you had a, I think that was a drinking horn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I did have a... A horn of some. Yeah. Not too much. No, just just the, a horn of just the right amount. Mm. I don't think I ever did drink out of that. That's probably okay. Yeah, it didn't seem sanitary mm -hmm. i suspect odin does not have that issue though because mm -mm. he nasty <laughs> we also see i talked about like the where's waldo quality of that if you look really closely at the scroll that he is reading it starts off by saying hello <laughs> which is where i kind of got the idea that he's just checking his email and that's how that works in in asgard huh. it's just all on scrolls curious as to how he wants to resolve this Civil War in the Land of the Dead. The issue is also called War of the Dead, which, if that isn't a George Romero movie, Ooh. it should be. Mm. Well, we've got a few more things to discuss, but I suspect most of it will come up in the minutiae, so, uh, you ready to move into the minutiae? Sure, let's. Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, I suspect this category might take a little while, so let's get it started now. Sartorially speaking. Oh, boy. Which elements of fashion do you want to talk about? So, since we were just talking about the Allfather... That red robe is, is pretty dope. He's got little patterns on all over it. He's got that fancy golden drinking thing sitting on these little bone feet. Mm -hmm. The detail in the panel is quite impressive. It is. Odin's got one of those outfits that seems to change a lot, depending on who's drawing him. And really, Asgard in general, 
I like the aesthetic of it that's established in this. It reminds me so much of Eternia from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, mm. where it's a mixture of, like, prototypical old-timey old barbarian shit and new high-tech shit, but more colorful. Mm -hmm. Like, because, I mean, I think Bifrost, the Rainbow Bridge, just kind of establishes the tone of multi-hued cosmic weirdness that's going on in Asgard. And everybody takes their cue from Kirby on this. And with the exception of the new gods, I think Marvel's depiction of Asgard is as close to like pure Kirby as you get. And I think artists are very keen to play in that mm -hmm. like sandbox. So yeah, you get a lot of people who have like really fun, elaborate, high-tech barbarian outfits. Uh, Harokin is one of them. Which I can kind of not say his name without saying it the way that you would shoot a fireball in Street Fighter. Harukin! Harukin! He's, I guess, the leader of the Army of the Dead? I'm not familiar with him as a character outside of this issue, but he seems like a pretty chill guy. And he's got, like, yeah, a nice mix of the typical He-Man fuzzy underwear barbarian outfit and then, like, high-tech robo-leggings and shit. And it's a pretty good look for him. He also seemed like a good guy. He's a real, like, booster of, of Val. Yeah. She shows up. She's all bummed out. And he's like, hey, why the long face? He says it all old-timey, mm -hmm. of course. Well, yeah, because, you know, when you're a Norse god from the 6th century, you naturally talk like a British lord from the 16th century. Yeah, why not? Anywho, he's nice to Val. He tries to uh, intervene on her behalf when Hela shows up and is like, Val's like, oh man, she's gonna send me to be punished, and he reacts really strongly, actually. Yeah, he's banished. Like, yeah, fucking get out of here with that shit, Hella. And Hella's like, no, 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 it's cool. I wasn't gonna banish anybody. Don't listen to the fucking fates. The Norns are a bunch of jerk holes. They're always just stirring up trouble. Which is a good segue to Hella's outfit. Yeah, Hella's outfit is hella rad. <laughs> Hannigan does a really nice job with it. You can tell he puts a little bit more time into her rendering than he does some of the other characters. And I think that's because Jack Kirby's depiction of Hela is one of like the most iconic character designs ever. And he does a pretty nice job with it. Her headgear, as he draws it, is a little bit less elaborate than when Kirby draws it. Mm. But yeah, it is weird, like, black antlers made out of dark energy, kind of, that you're never really sure if they're there or if they're an absence of all matter and yeah it's just a cool ass outfit i love hella's look yeah the front of it has some intricate almost like uh celtic knot type patterns with little lines going over and under one another it must have been the pain in the butt to draw so mm -hmm. many times but worth it i think yep it's cool looking Popo. His outfit, I gotta say, I think Popo the Cunning is maybe a nickname he chose for himself, because based on his outfit, and to the large extent his behavior in this issue, it is not an appellation he has earned. No, he looks very jestery, and also very, we're not quite to the 80s yet, but I I think the, the fashion trend was, you know, underway in 1978. Mm. I viewed him kind of just to get back to the He-Man thing. He seemed like a real Orko type. Like an evil Orko. Oh, like a high squeaky voice? I, probably. Yeah. 
He reminded me like a, of a cross between him and like Toad from the X Men. Mm. Yeah, he's Toady. Yeah. I don't, I don't. I don't care for this Popo. Although I do like his name. Mm. But yeah, he had like a like a dunce hat basically that he's wearing, which doesn't really jibe with the cunning. Lots of big, pointy collars and like lapels, I guess. Like uh, yeah, like an '80s business wizard. Oh, business wizard. Yeah. We also, this barely counts as fashion, but it is weird to see that Hellcat sleeps in her superhero clothes. My first thought was, oh, Kyle's around. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we I think this is the first time we see Hellcat in her apartment. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty nice apartment. Yeah, it's cool. Swanky pad. Mm-hmm. Um, she is one of two defenders that we see in this issue, her and Valkyrie. We do see a picture of Kyle. Okay, we do see a, we see a couple of pictures of Kyle because... Once again, his floating head does show up in the Valkyrie having a vision of the future thing. I, I mean an actual depiction of a photograph of Kyle. Yes, when he is being investigated for being a criminal. Which he totally fucking is. Mm-hmm. Like, he is canonically established as a super burglar, which he was for like 20 years before he signed up for the Defenders. And then the SEC, I think, is just like, yeah, but he's doing some stuff with securities and fraud, which I wonder if that's related to the uh, the shocker. Mm. Like two panels from a, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's in big trouble. Which, you know what? He fucking should be. He tried to blow up the world a couple of times and he was a mega rich super burglar. I mean, I don't think you make up for that by being bad at superheroing for a few years. Definitely not. Lock him up. Wanna talk about Ski God? Yeah, we gotta talk about Olorus's outfit, man. I mean, I know we did already, but dang, that shit is tight. Literally and uh, metaphorically. Yeah, he has a big giant robo-shark head over his head. And this bizarre combination of robotic anthropomorphic shark armor and then a serpentine tail... And he really is playing into, like, a shark motif with, like, his mountain headquarters looks like a shark fin that's pointing above the mist. Mm -hmm. Lot going on with that guy. Very sinister look. Very overwhelming to the point of ridiculousness. It made me chuckle when I first saw it. Very silly. Indeed. And that outfit and that character are, in fact, the inspiration for our next category. Behold or be gone. So, Corey, mm-hmm. you can be the Norse god of any Olympic event, but every time you go out of your house, you have to dress like a ripoff of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It can be the first generation of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You can dress like a geriatric jujitsu gerbil, a adolescent radioactive black belt hamster, or it can be a ripoff of the later cartoon era. You can dress like a biker mice from Mars. You can dress like a street shark. But in exchange, you do get to be a Norse god of an Olympic event of your choosing. Wait, though, did any of those characters wear clothing other than, like, a little eye band and little pieces of cloth? You're dressing up like them. Oh, you don't have to leave the house wearing nothing but a... No, no, because there would be an easy out if you were doing that. You could just dress like Hamster Vice, and then you would just dress like Don Johnson from the 80s, and I know you would take that. But no, you would have to dress like a hamster dressed like that. 
So like uh like some kind of like a foam or metal armor suit. Oh man. I I would like to have some godlike powers, mm-hmm. but also every time I've worn a costume for Halloween even if it's one I like, after a couple hours I'm like, man, this is uncomfortable. Yeah, but I mean maybe your uh Norse powers as a god wouldn't make you more comfortable dealing with that. You'd have, you know, mighty thews. I'm not saying you don't, I'm just saying you definitely would in this context. No, it sounds like too much work. I'm going to go with be gone. Okay, that's fair. If you were to, what Olympic event would you choose? And what Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ripoff would you choose? It has to be a Winter Olympics event? No, nope, it could be summer event. or winter. Hmm. You could be a god of basketball. <laughs> no, there's a stretch. <laughs> really bad at basketball. Um, hmm. I think I would probably choose... Oh, I'd be the judo god. God of judo? Yeah. That's pretty cool. That would be cool. Yeah. And what Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ripoff would you choose? I hadn't thought of it before, but um, now that you mention it, I would be Wolf from Hamster Vice. <laughs> he was the one with the long hair. <laughs> You'd be, which, was he the Philip Michael Thomas one? I can't remember <laughs> who was supposed to be who. His name was like W-O-L-P-H or something. Oh, pretty cool. I might be making that up. I can't remember. It's a long I, time I ago. I believe you. Pretty good. What about you? Oh, I'm beholden. Yeah? I'm definitely beholden. I agree. I do not like dressing up in elaborate costumes for Halloween. Every time I've done it, it's been a little bit more of a pain than I had wished it was. But I think it is worth it. Also, you know, you can do more stuff online these days. You get stuff delivered to your house, you know. You don't have to go out that often. I would definitely behold, and I would be the god of, and I thought this through a lot. Initially, I was, man, I would love to be a god of basketball. That would be pretty sweet. Mm. But I think I'm going to go modern pentathlon. So that's five things. Yeah. I can't remember Much which, like... which five are in it. Running and jumping. And I don't think jumping is. I think running is one of them, but it is equestrian. Wait, aren't you afraid of horses? Yeah, but I wouldn't be if I was a god of horses. Pretty, pretty badass. Oh. So, it's equestrian, shooting, fencing. Oh. And I think swimming and running, I'm a little bit unclear on what two of them are. But one of the cool things about, like, the shooting one is it's pistol shooting, but in the Olympics, it's actually with, a like, a special, like, light gun thing. So, it's basically laser shooting. So, it's, like, fencing, riding a horse, shooting a laser... And swimming and running. How have I never seen that sport? That event sounds awesome. I know. I know. I mean, I think it's drawn out over a fair amount of time. It's not one of the more popular events. But it really seems like it should be. I think it was based on duties that a cavalry officer might have to perform. It's somehow tied into, like, military shit. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, I, I would take modern pentathlon because I would be a god of laser guns and sword fights. That's pretty fucking badass. That is. And you, who would you dress up like? I think I would go preteen dirty jean kung fu kangaroos. Because I feel like I could modify a mutant kangaroo outfit to look kind of like the Rippers from uh, Tank Girl. And so it, it, I, th- I think I could deal with that. Probably have a lot of internal storage. Mm-hmm. Like, and like, like bionic hopping ability. A lot of pockets, you're right. Dude, the bionic hopping is going to be... You can't just go on Amazon and get one of those. You can when you're a god. 
I'll call up some other guy. I'll call up, like, Hephaestus from the Greek pantheon and be like, Hey, dude, need some bionic, uh... Kangaroo Kangaroo legs. armor. Look a god up. <laughs> so, yeah. Under those conditions, I am giving this a... Behold! Be gone. Tough but fair. Thank you. I didn't know about the sword fighting and laser beams. <laughs> I might have... I was, I was thinking biathlon, but I... Uh, it's already taken. You know, Shark Sharkman is the obviously the god of biathlons. Yeah, and he's already dressing up like a anthropomorphic animal. Yeah, no, I mean he's the reason for the season. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? I don't know. What was your favorite sound effect? I had a toss up between one that's not really a sound effect and and one that's an actual sound effect. Okay, was the one that is actually a sound effect? Daco. You know it. That was dynamic as anything. Mm-hmm. Surprising dearth of actual sound effects given the extent of the action in this issue. But, yeah, I went with Dakum. It's a sound effect we've seen before, but it is illustrated very dynamically in this. What was the uh, edge case that you were fond of? That was, um, shit, what's a, a general of the Dead Army's name? Oh, uh, that would be Harukin. Harukin. <laughs> When uh, when Val is all bummed out and tells Harukin that she's going to be banished, and he just shouts, and it's in bigger letters than anything on the whole page, Thou banished? With like a bunch of exclamation points and question marks. Pretty good. He is so surprised. Uh-huh. It is unfortunate that now anytime I see question marks and exclamation points used in conjunction, I do first think of a talking pony. Oh, no. God, that movie was awful. What was your pie not Now up? I'm going to do that. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. You're not. You no. see, he's grinning like a fool. <laughs> Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel for this issue? What words did you enjoy, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made out of steel? Uh, I had two that were not even really full sentences, just more like uh, one was an exclamation, one is an explanation. Okay. And the exclamation that I liked was Val on page 11 saying, By my blade! And I thought that was a good, like, warrior oath to swear. Yeah. Yeah. It's not quite by my dad's beard, (laughs) but it's pretty good. Yeah. I also had a couple. They were a bit longer. My first one was on page 21, and it is the explanation of how Valhalla's gone to shit. And I liked it because it did seem more in tying with my understanding of Valhalla. And it's anarchistic revelry in battle had given way to the wages of desperate war. So normally they're just like whacking at each other with swords and being like, <laughs> didn't die. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they're actually locked in battle and there are stakes to it and it sucks for everybody. I thought that was a nice way to explain that. It's like when a uh, wrestling for fun turns serious. Mm-hmm. They took things too far. Mm-hmm. Now they're having a bad time. Exactly. What was your other pie? Uh, my other pie was um, Popo's description, and that was when he was referred to as a pint-sized prestidigitator. Pretty good. And the only reason I knew how to make sense of that was from playing Dungeons and Dragons, where, you know, prestidigitation is like mm. uh, casting spells that you have to use your hands to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's generally what stage magicians do, where it's like magic, but is not really magic. Illusions. Mm-hmm. Probably also where the uh, the word presto comes from, ah. and where the uh, Rush album presto comes from. Wow, 
That was a late 80s, early 90s Rush album that Lisa really loves. Really? It's an unfortunate era for Rush, in my opinion, but I do get a couple of songs off that album stuck in my head now. Yeah? Yeah. My other favorite words were from Hellcat, when she is in her apartment and waking up. Nuts! Some happy-go-lucky Hellcat I am. Ever since Val split, I've been haunted by the heebie-jeebies. I like the way she talks. I do, too. I like specifically haunted by the heebie-jeebies. That seems like that should be like a 60s jam band album. Mm-hmm. Like maybe a follow-up to the Moray Eels Eat the Holy Modal Rounders. What? There were two bands, the Moray Eels and the Holy Modal Rounders, and they had a team-up album that was called The Moray Eels Eat the Holy Modal Rounders. Um, it was weird psychedelic nonsense that was pretty good. I didn't even think you liked jam-type music. It was an album my parents had when I was growing up, uh, and I just listened to it a bunch. I got a few of those. Yeah. Speaking of which, that's one thing that I like so much about Hellcat's slang, is it does all sound pretty old-timey, even, I think, by the 70s standards. Mm -hmm. It's weird. That does tie in with the fact that she is, this keeps coming up, that she is, like, a good version of Beast Boy. Because he also is always having anachronistic sayings and phrases but when he does it it's annoying and when she does it it's charming mm-hmm. <laughs> in every issue of a defenders comic there is one character who has to act in a manner uncharacteristic to their previously established characterization or motivation in a way that furthers the plot to paraphrase the fat boys from crush groove they just got to be a sucker in this issue who was your sucker so my choice doesn't quite meet all the criteria for the sucker category in that it doesn't really further the plot. But uh, we're just talking about Hellcat, and uh, she references it herself, where basically she is one of the characters that I just expect to spring into action, consequences be damned, Mm -hmm. drive dangerously, just act now, go find your friend Val, figure out what's going on, and she's kind of moping around her apartment, which didn't seem very... In yeah, character. I can see that. I, I think her subplot is that she's still dealing with the awakening of her psychic powers, which I think was the mental blast before, and now she's having visions of Val suffering that I think Val is also having. And I think she's just thrown out a little bit out of whack because of that, but I still think that's a valid choice. I went with Barbara Norris, because in this we see that she has secretly been scheming alongside Popo and Olerus to regain control of her body, or I guess to pull a switcheroo where she gets control of Valkyrie's unused body. But either way, when she first pops up, I want to have at least some capital A's. If you want to transition her away from the long string of capital A's, use a different vowel. Or show her turning to sanity by using a Y or a W, a sometimes vowel. But, like, we need to have some transition from her sorcerously appointed mental instability to being a Machiavellian schemer, rather than just jump right into it. Yeah, and that was one of the the problems I had with the main problem with this comic book, was at the end of it, it was just way too abrupt. I was like, oh, what are they going to come up with? Like, okay, I'm not surprised that Val's being like, oh, this seems like a trap. Okay, let's go in. Yeah, "Yeah, okay, that's that's standard superhero. That's what you guys do. And I wasn't surprised that she was like, oh, sleeping, maybe me, my other self? A sleeping me. I must softly caress myself. Because why wouldn't you? Sure. 
I mean, I think we've all thought about that. Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then, bam! And then Barbara Norris is like, I am totally evil now. Yeah, which, that's not how it was. She wasn't an evil person. She had joined an evil cult, but then she sacrificed her life to save the earth from the evil cult. And then she got kind of uh, Stockholm syndromed by Glenn, mm -hmm. the nameless guy. Mm -hmm. But even in that, she wasn't really evil. No. And now she's, I guess, sane and evil. Yeah. And Popo's over there like, yeah. And especially it came home when you saw how solicitous as to her potential well-being Valkyrie was throughout it. Where she was just like, I can't let anything happen to this body. I don't give a fuck if I die. But it's not fair to Barbara because she's going to want this body back at some point, And I got to be a safe driver because this is a rental. Yep. Yep. Super considerate. And then my earlier comment, I think when we first started talking about this, about it all being a complex plot to give the old costume back, that's uh -huh. because when, when Babs is reawoken, she's wearing the old Valkyrie costume. Right. So that was why Barbara Norris was my choice for the Sucka in this issue. Now we have kind of a difficult category because there's not a ton to go on, but Every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who is the best defender and who is the worst offender? I had for the best Val, pretty much for mainly the reason that you just mentioned, where her deep consideration of uh, Barbara Norris's welfare. Yeah. Like, if I had so much dangerous, scary stuff to do, it would be very hard for me to also think of this other consciousness that was maybe sleeping inside me yeah and you do see like the position that she's put in she's the only person in the battle for valhalla that has any real stakes like she's the only person with a mortal body that's in that mm -hmm. and granted it's a mortal body that i guess is sorcerously imbued with extra might but it's barbara norris's body and if it dies it's dead yeah some heavy stuff and yeah. she she deals with it well yeah like I said, I was choosing from a pool of two in this. So I was like, well, is it Patsy or is it Val? And I had them both written down for both of them because they both do good things and they both do bad things. And I thought maybe we could just kind of talk it through and figure out which side of it we come down on. Because I, I had an out. You went with Nighthawk because there's a picture of him. Yes, and he's, he's potentially a, a uh, corporate criminal. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, he's definitely a criminal. And he's definitely a corporate criminal, too, because all of the bullshit that Pennysworth did, where he was, like, giving money to the clan and shit, mm -hmm. that was happening under his watch. He's responsible for those actions. So he really should go to jail. Therefore, worst. Okay. So the bad things that I had Val doing <laughs> were walking into the obvious trap, she threw a horse at some guys, which... That was... It was badass, but that's not a very nice thing to do. Well, it's to a, the horse. It's a Valhalla horse. I don't know if the horses are eternal, though. They would, they would have to be. Are they, they the souls would, of they horses? Would go through so, so these many... are horses that died in battle. I think to get to Valhalla, you have to be holding a weapon in your hand. I think that's one of the rules. Maybe... Somebody Is a horse always threw... holding a weapon in its hand because of its, its sharp and pointy hooves? I was going to say, maybe somebody else that went to Valhalla went there whilst throwing that horse, and they both got selected. And Maybe. I, that doesn't make sense. I just think that she threw a horse at some guys, which is badass, but not very nice to the horse. 
I agree with everything. Although I can see that maybe to like a horse is just like, no man, these hooves are lethal weapons. (laughs) I had to register these hooves with the state. Um, That's a Elvis share horse. That's, that I was, was apparently doing an impression. It was very confusing. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was a good pantomime, though. You made good moves with your hands when you said that. Thank you. And then for Patsy, she had a nice apartment that she decorated well, and I liked that. But she left her phone on the floor where anybody could trip over it. And I don't like that. So I think on the whole, I'm going to give the best defender to Valkyrie and the worst defender to Patsy. but. Really, anybody's game there. I didn't think of gaming the system the way that you did by choosing the picture of Nighthawk. Well done. Thank you. I think that's a little harsh for a phone on the floor. (laughs) Have you seen the Dick Van Dyke show? When he trips over that ottoman in the opening uh, sequence, he could have died. And that same thing could happen in Patsy's apartment. You leave that, it's a big clunky phone. It's not like a cell phone. I don't think she and Dick Van Dyke hang out, though. I bet they do. They're both fun. Better tell him to look out. <laughs> I, I would. Dick Van Dyke's rad. Do you know that he is a member of a acapella barbershop group called the Van Dykes? No. They performed for Obama at the White House. Really? Mm-hmm. Weird. Okay, it turns out that what I said there is only partly true. Dick Van Dyke's singing group is an acapella band, but they're actually named the Vantastics, which is a much better name. The next thing that I'm going to say here is absolutely true, though. Anyway, Dick Van Dyke's rad. What was your favorite panel? So we did talk already about the uh, the opening one on pages two and three with the, the Patterson-Hannigan column. I thought that was really well executed. I disagree, but I can understand why you would like it. Yeah, it was, it was good, I thought. We also just talked about Val throwing the horse. I was very amused, despite feeling bad for the fictional horse that got thrown. Same. But I think my favorite was on page seven, and I called it um, Pensive or Scared Val. And it's the one on the the bottom of page seven where the fates are bullshitting or not her. Right. And saying, hey, real bad shit's going to happen. And um, she looks kind of like she's camping and holding the flashlight under her face while telling a ghost story. Uh-huh. It's a really cool illustration. But she scared herself with that ghost story because she looks very frightened. In oh, yeah, she's freaked out. Despite my overall issues with the art in this comic book, and I did have a fair amount of them, it's mostly from a storytelling perspective that I have issues with it. And a lot of them are really nicely drawn pictures uh, just taken on their own. That page is one of them. The picture of hell that's on that page is rad. Mm-hmm. I also, there are a couple of close-ups of a few different characters, and I think I'm going to go with one of those. The picture of Val that's on page three, it is like a picture from a romance comic, and it's just a really nice job is done by both Hannigan and Bruce Patterson in this. It's just a nice close-up picture of Val, and she is arriving in Asgard and has a lot of shit on her mind. The other close-up that I like a lot is the face of one of the Norns, I believe that is Erder. And uh, yeah, she looks into the past. And she's just a scary looking witch. Mm-hmm. And it's a really nicely drawn picture. It looks very like Tales from the Crypt, EC horror comics yeah, style. And it's really well done. And like I said, unlike some of the other ones, 
really clear delineation between foreground and background, and you can tell what you're supposed to be looking at in it. Mm-hmm. Good choice. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? Well, the Hulk doesn't show up in this issue, so I think he's still adhering to some of the rules we've talked about in the past about taking time to take care of yourself and everything, but also he's been lately reflecting on something that, for whatever reason, seems to have been popping up in my social media feeds a lot lately, which is this idea of the people that you surround yourself with have a strong effect on the qualities that you exhibit. Mm. Kyle. Oh. So he's <laughs> he's like, you know what? I need to take some space and get away from some of these toxic people, clear my head, get my shit together before I go back to uh, work with them again. Hmm. Now, are you talking about the Instagram post from Chuck D of Public Enemy where he said, if you know 20 people to go out drinking with but not one you can do business with, you've got problems? No, I'm not, but that's that sounds right on the money. <laughs> Hulk's trying to solve that problem. I think that's a very good Hulk's rule. Thank you. The Hulk's rule that I decided to go with is don't set yourself up as an authority on something that you don't know jack shit about. And the way that he thinks of that, the metaphor that he uses is if you've never been somewhere, don't make a map of it because Popo makes a shitty fucking map in this issue. He's showing it to Olorus, and like I said, there's the Mountain of the Minotaur, which what's that doing in Valhalla in your map of a fucking VA hall? But the other items on this map are there's the Ice Desert to the north, the hills of Valhalla, that doesn't make any sense. But there's a whole region that is very clearly mapped out and has some, some mountains in it that just says, Unknown Lands. Then how, what shape did you know to draw them in? That is some lazy cartography. It really is. The whole map, there's the dark forest. And then just another thing that just says, forest. And then there's the forest of fawns. Which, I mean, sounds nice. I like baby deers too, but doesn't seem particularly like... Norse warrior god. Maybe they're like fawns, like the pan kind. Like fawn hall? No, Those are, you isn't mean that nymphs? another name for, uh, for like the goat-legged guys? Oh, or... F-A-U-N. Yeah. Yeah, but no, it's spelled F-A-W-N. Oh. <laughs> it's just a bunch of baby deers. That's Ma- just a bunch of baby deers or fawn hall. So, if Wait. you've never been somewhere, don't, don't make a map of it. That's the Hulk's rule. That's the Hulk's rule. <laughs> Fucking popo. Well, I think we just got one thing left on the agenda. Yep. It's time to write some Wongs. Ah. In the year of our Lord, 1978, and the month of our Lord, December, what Wongs needed writing? So we're in uh, December 1978. Need to um, look back a decade previous to 10 years younger Wong on a road trip to the California coast and enjoying the newly opened Redwoods National Park. Mm. And he just had a great time out there checking out the uh, the giant old trees and communing with nature. And It's a beautiful national park. Have you been there? I haven't. No, I would like to. Those trees are so big. They're huge. I've seen pictures. And uh, yeah, they made quite the impression on Wong. And uh, he's, you know, often made efforts to go back there. Doesn't quite make it every year, but... Definitely keeps up with the with the news about the national parks and in particular redwoods. In the mid seventies, it came to his attention that though the parks were 
you know, obviously federally protected land, that the adjacent areas were being used for different purposes, logging one of them, and that that was actually having a bad effect on the parks because it was basically next door, so so right. the ecosystem was getting out of whack. So Wong uh, set some, some time to meet with his old buddy, President Carter, ah. who this is canon now that, that they have a relationship. Well and, established. Yeah. And it's like... Jenny, my man, you have to expand the the parks to protect more of these beautiful and important old growth trees. And uh, Carter was like, "Yeah, I would, I would love to, but people rely on those jobs, and I'm afraid that if we take away that that industry, especially with in redwoods, that people are going to be out of work, and it's going to be it's going to be hard on America to do that." And Wong planted the the seed of this idea. It's like, well, what if if there are industry impacts, you offset that with some federal dollars. Ah. And uh, Jimmy's like, oh, good idea, Wong. It's going to be a little hard to get that pushed through all the branches of government, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. And it worked. And um, at the beginning of, of the month in December 1978, uh, Carter was successful in more than doubling the national parks in the U.S., and in part because there was concessions to help replace the income that was lost by industries like logging that were impacted. So, well done, Wong. Good job, Wong. Well, that was one thing that Wong was up to in December of 78. Another thing that he was up to is he had some plans for later in the month, and he wanted to get himself in the right mood for them. He was going to be attending a wedding of a friend later on in the month. So he decided, you know what? I'm going to see a movie that has a wedding in it. So he went and saw The Deer Hunter. Oh. Yeah, he was down to seeing that or Superman, oh. which were both <laughs> opening. And he went with The Deer Hunter. And even before you get to all of the really fucked up shit that happens in that movie, it opens with like a two-hour Polish wedding in the Midwest. And so Wong was just like, what the fuck? And then it gets to the really screwed up stuff with the uh, the Russian roulette tournament that... Christopher Walken ends up in, and he's just like, oh, God, I am not looking forward to this wedding. But he had made a commitment. So <laughs> when his friend Michael Crichton, who uh, he had met when he uh, was a stand-in for Yul Brenner in the filming of Westworld, <laughs> they had struck up a bit of a friendship. Wong shows up at that wedding and he's just like, oh god, this is going to be interminable. It's going to be as long as that wedding and the deer hunter. So he just hit the open bar early and often. Ooh. And it got him through the wedding. It was a shorter ceremony than he was expecting. This is December 31st when Michael Crichton wed Kathleen St. John, a prominent lawyer. And Wong ended up getting pretty sloshed and hanging out with Michael Crichton. At one point, he's just got his arm around him, and he's like, Hey, buddy, you had that shit right with the Westworld and the Future World. Amusement parks are no good. They're gonna get you. You should do more about that. And Michael Crichton was like, Well, I, I think two movies about amusement parks that go horribly wrong and have disastrous consequences is probably enough. And Wong was like, No, no, no. Let me tell you about the time me and Steve went to Epcot Center and we went to the opening of Splash Mountain. It was fucking horrible. <laughs> horrible. And uh, once again, like with Jimmy Carter, Wong ended up planting a seed 
that this one took a little longer to grow. But that is probably why in 1990, Michael Crichton wrote Jurassic Park. Yet another story about an amusement park gone horribly wrong. And uh, he was glad that he did because that was a, I don't know if you're aware of this, pretty successful book. I think they even made a movie out of it. Yeah. And that was the Wong that was written in December of 1978. Nice job, Wong. Well done. He did end up seeing Superman later on and uh, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed the performance of Ned Beatty as uh, Lex Luthor's bumbling nephew. Really liked the performance of Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Thought that Christopher Reeve made a pretty good Superman. Very impressed with Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. All right. And that's Wong's review of Superman. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. This has been a real treat. I enjoyed uh, going through this comic. And like I said, it's an issue that the more time I spent with it, the more that I enjoyed it. So... Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. Likewise. If you would like to get into touch with us, there's a few ways that you can do that. We have a P.O. Box that is Tighten Up the Defense P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. We can also, as this is the future, be contacted electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're running a little bit low on synopsis rhymes, so if you wanted to submit one, you'd probably go pretty near the front of the list. So, you know. Now's a good time. Strike while the iron is an iron, as the saying goes. You never know when it'll get transmuted, turned into gold. Oh, wait, nope, that's lead. Gotta catch up on my alchemy. A hut. Oh, strike while the iron is a hut. A hut. Is a hat? No, is hot. Oh, strike while the hat is hot. If you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or any place where you can leave a review then uh, I think that would be a really nice thing for you to do. We've gotten some really, really nice ones lately. Uh, One of them described us as their podcast comfort food, which was very touching. I've always likened myself to macaroni and cheese, as you know, Corey, and it's nice to have some validation of that. I'm more of a big bowl of mashed potatoes with some gravy on top. I've always said that. The important thing is we are both Perfect angel babies sent from heaven. (laughs) That's the takeaway. Yeah. So, you know, why not write one of those things in a review and uh, submit it to whatever podcasting application you are currently listening to this on. It would help people find the show, which I think would be a nice thing for them to do and a nice thing for you to do. Other ways that you can support us are, well, heck, not to be crass, but monetarily would be greatly appreciated. Uh, You can do that by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a ton of bonus material. Uh, I've been making, at least weekly, I've been trying to make several a week uh, video reviews of classic comic books. Classic kind of stretches the definition some. One of my favorites was when I talked about the comic book adaptation of the TV show Sledgehammer. But if you'd like to see those, then, uh, you know, you could uh, donate to us at patreon.com. If you do, you get access to a monthly podcast that Lisa and I co-host called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's a podcast about Howard the Duck. And there's a bunch of other bonus material on there as well. But mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate what we do and would like us to keep doing it. We're also on all of the places of the internet where you might expect to find us, and some of them you might not. We're up in uh, the Tumblr, the Stitcher, the Facebook, the uh, Twitter, the uh, LinkedIn, the Grinder, the um, 
SeaCaptainsOnly.com. Uh, technically, the podcast is a sea captain. Neither Corey or I are, but the podcast is. So if you'd like to date a podcast, then I don't think you can. I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Sea Captains Only. And sorry, Sea Captains. For so many things. You didn't say anything bad about them. The Sea Captains know what I did. What did you do? We'll talk later. And if you can't find us in any of those places, then look inside your heart. We'll be there. We've always been there. Rearranging the furniture, trying not to put holes in the wall when we hang our pictures. Sorry. It's just that a lot of, like, your stickums mm-hmm. and, like, the, the uh, gummies, the putties mm. don't really stick to the, uh, the chambers of the heart walls, mm. the cellular walls. It, it's just, we're, we're trying our best. We use very small tacks. They'll fill in, they'll fill in just fine with some putty and we'll repaint when we leave. We want that security deposit back from your heart. But here's the thing. We're never moving out. We got rent control. Yeah, we got rent control in your heart. Sweet. Yeah. Okay, this is Hub the Cunning signing off. (laughs) And this is a big bowl of mashed potatoes smothered in gravy. Mm. Goodbye. Bye.